you know, when you're looking through, and I've never looked through, and you see those things that look abnormal. Yeah. Do, do you go? Oh, it's a bittersweet like thing, actually. Yeah. Um, because they are so fascinating and they are such beautiful cells, but um, mm. they are bad, 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 bad. Yep. Make a blood film and look down the microscope for you. Yeah, because yeah. I've noticed here in Prince of Wales, this hospital, or especially in this lab, it's huge. Like, oh, I feel like I'm walking through one of the biggest labs I've ever walked through in yes. my career. Welcome to the EDGM. Okay, hey guys, welcome to episode 12 of the EDGM. Um, and right now I'm sitting um, at Prince of Wales in the hospital and I'm chatting with to Rebecca Winoto. Um, I'm pretty excited to be chatting with a haematologist. I'm actually a little bit nervous. Um, we've spent, we've got a coffee, we've had a chat, um, and I'm really excited and really grateful to be talking to Beck. Um, Beck, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Um, and I'm really excited to be chatting um, through haematological emergencies. Beck, number one, who are you? What? Yeah, who are you? So I am a haematologist, but I am also a clinical genomicist. Uh, that's quite a mouthful and a bit uh, pretentious, so I do apologise. <laughs> but I think um, probably a lot of people don't understand that um, haematology advanced training is very, very gruelling. Um, but our supposed reward at the end of it is, is we are fellows of the College of Pathology and fellows of the College of um, Physicians. Um, most haematologists choose to do uh, clinical haematology. A few do a bit of laboratory and a bit of clinical and the very rare um, people like me choose just to do uh, laboratory training but on top of all of my um, haematology training I have also done three years of a fellowship in molecular genetics and uh, genomics. You are a very educated woman. <laughs> yes. It's all a bit ridiculous, isn't uh, it? No, it's good. And we're going to get on to some of the things you love to talk about, genomics as well, because you're really passionate about it. Mm. Um, why haematology or initially? Why did you... Why haematology initially? So I was a scientist before I did medicine. I came to medicine quite late. Um, and I loved that career. I just felt I needed to do something more. Um, and the the research that I had done as a scientist was um, mostly molecular oncology. Um, and as I progressed through my medical training, I really felt that I wanted to do something that allowed me to go back to that basic research. Mm. Um, but actually, the thing that made me do haematology was uh, working as a resident at St Vincent's Hospital. The department was so nice and so supportive. And I think if a lot of us are honest about the decisions we make in our career, mm. we are often influenced by good people. And that certainly was the case with me. Wow. So actually, it was just luck. <laughs> <laughs> luck and good people. They are a rare breed. Um, but when you come across them, it's, it's truly a great thing, I think. H hence why I'm here now. I'm finding the rare breed of really good <laughs> people and, and, using, and listening to them. What is haematology? So I guess, what is it? So haematology is really... I. <laughs> 
So I have three children and my husband is an emergency physician and my three children can understand that he is a doctor. They cannot understand <laughs> that I am a doctor, um, which in some ways is a bit insulting. <laughs> but not that I think that the audience is children, but essentially what I explain to them is haematology is about blood. Cool. Um, and within the, the specialty of haematology, there is quite a range of things, but essentially we divide it into two things. So we divide it into the malignant haematology, that's your leukemias and your lymphomas, um, and the non-malignant haematology, which is a whole rag bag of stuff, but includes things like thalassemias, sickle cells, um, clotting, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Wow. Now, you've come to talk about some haematological emergencies, and two of yes. them you're going to unpack for us. We'll unpack sickle cell crisis and cytokine release syndrome. but. In reviewing, I think, those two um, emergencies, uh, there are lessons for all the haematological um, emergencies that you might see um, and have to ring people about in the emergency. Yeah. I guess you could be thinking, Ben, why not just cover bleeding disorders? Why cover something so rare? It's important to remember that I'm sitting at a centre for rare diseases and the person I thought that would be appropriate was someone who knows a lot about rare diseases, who knows a lot about genomics, who knows a lot about haematology, and that was Rebecca. Um, even just sitting there and hearing her brain just unpack all of this stuff, I'm be prepared, she's amazing. Um, it's also really key to remember that um, there's always lessons in any hematological emergency that we can get out of it as emergency um, peeps. So talk us through sickle cell. So I might, I'll start with sickle cell. Yep. So um, it's pretty rare in Australia, um, but it is definitely increasing. So it's increasing with um, the refugee community and with um, the increasing multicultural status of Australia. Sickle cell um, is a disease of haemoglobin, essentially, and haemoglobin is the main oxygen-carrying um, protein in the blood so it's vital to us it's a fascinating disease it is one single nucleotide change in in that enormous amount of dna that you have so it's a single change in the beta globin gene which is the main um, uh, globin chain of adult hemoglobin and that single change means that um, the globin um, precipitates out in the red cell and the red cell is a very, um, it's almost like a balloon. So mm. it's very, it, it has to be very um, fluid almost to get through the microcirculation. And if you have sickle cell and if you're um, precipitating out globin compounds, it means that the red and these polymerize and the red cell gets very um it's no longer fluid and it gets stuck in the microcirculation okay. and its shape changes its shape changes because of that the polymerization and that that stuff essentially protein um precipitating out mm. yeah so, yeah because I've, I've seen pictures of like looking like a banana or something yeah or, or so shape. it look you can see it down the microscope you yeah, what look it look down like? the microscope and it looks like a sickle it looks like a half moon half moon um, okay yeah but the the point about that is is actually 20 percent of patients who do have sickle cell disease won't have sickle cells on their blood field. Oh wow! So okay. don't don't. Um, it, it can be a little bit tricky. Okay, don't just know. assume yeah. like you read the textbooks and go, oh, "This it is what it's meant to look like." Um, 
I think we need to be aware of a broad range of complications that yep. occur in this condition um, and all of them are serious and life-threatening things like uh, splenic sequestr- sequestration, yep. uh, chest crisis, hyperhemolysis, bony crisis, um, they, they are susceptible to strokes. Um, so all, all the complications are really, really serious. These patients may present for the first time as, you know, sort of a primary school age kid um, and and people may not be aware and the family and the child may not be aware that they actually have sickle cell. Crux of treatment in the emergency department of any sickle cell crisis uh, really is two things. It's it's oxygen um, and it's pain relief. Things like bony crisis are incredibly painful don't underestimate how painful they are and ensure that your patients have adequate um, pain relief and it's very important that you ring the haematology team early Um, how would you know that someone has sickle cell or you you suspect sickle cell so it's, hard, it's very hard actually so hopefully they have a history of it or they have a family history of it and then it's very, you know, it becomes very clear that they are having some kind of sickle crisis. Yep. It's the patients who have never presented before, might be new to the country, um, their English may not be very good, they may not know that they've got it, they are the really tricky okay. ones. And they're the ones um, you have to have a high index of suspicion. Yep. Sickle is common in sub-Saharan African, um, subcontinent Indian and some Middle Eastern populations. Okay. 10% are actually carriers so you can be a carrier um, which means you just have one copy of the mutated gene um, patients who have the disease have two copies of the mutated um, okay. mutated gene mostly patients will have a history but it then gets very tricky if they don't and that is where that's another lesson of, of um, hematology in the emergency department you can tell what someone has had for breakfast actually <laughs> um, if you look at their full blood count and red cell indices uh, two very simple, very okay. cheap tests. Awesome. Um, so although 20% of patients don't have sickle cells on their blood film, most cases when they are in sickle cell crisis, they will have sickles on their blood film. So okay. you should ring the laboratory and ask if there is a scientist who can have a look at the blood film for you. Okay. And that um, would be done here at Prince of Wales? Definitely, wow. yeah. All the big hospitals can do that, even yep. some of the small hospitals. Yep can make a blood film and look down the microscope for you. Yeah, because yeah. I've noticed here in Prince of Wales, this hospital, or especially in this lab, it's huge. Like, oh, I feel like I'm walking through one of the biggest labs I've ever walked through in yes, my career. it is a big lab. So, um, I mean, we have all the usual um, haematology, biochemistry, anatomical pathology, um, microbiology, which is a, a big thing, um, particularly at the moment, very topical. But actually, the genetics lab and the genomics lab that we're in at the moment is... I think has to be the biggest in the country. Are there any precipitating factors that lead to a sickle cell anemia? Yeah, hypoxia, um, infection, dehydration. So um, in Australia, I don't think we do sickle cell very well. Um, It's not common. Um, If you look in the States or say somewhere like London where there's a big Caribbean population, big hospital like King's actually have 
a whole team um, ready uh, on call and, and their only job is to come in and exchange um, transfuse sickle cell patients who are in crisis. Um, but we don't have that set up. We don't um, mm. have the resources and we actually don't have the patient numbers. But that is why it's, it's critical to call the haematology team early because it's quite possible that they're going to need to mobilise the apheresis team and come in and exchange transfuse that patient. Um, exchange transfusion is different from just a transfusion. Um, when you're transfusing someone, you just give them somebody else's blood. Yep. When you exchange transfuse, you are taking out the bad sickle haemoglobin and you're putting in somebody else's good normal haemoglobin. With sickle cell as well, just that we raised about chest syndromes and about um, splenic problems. How does sickle cell affect the spleen and how does it affect the chest? It's about microcirculation. The, um, those sickle cells can't get through the micro microcirculation properly. Um, so you get microvascular complications. Um, and you can get necrosis. All patients with um, sickle cell disease end up being functionally hyposplenic because they infarct pretty much all of their spleen. Okay. Because of the microcirculation, they can't get the oxygen through and they end up infarcting most of their spleen and then their spleen doesn't work. So that's another complication on top of everything. They don't have a functioning spleen. All susceptible to um, the encapsulated organisms. Um, and that's another thing that you have to keep in mind and make sure that your antibiotic coverage is covering yeah. encapsulated organisms. Chest, same again, you mentioned about the chest syndrome. Is that something specific to, um, to sickle cell? The yeah, so I've... the chest syndrome is a specific thing to sickle cell yeah. and uh, the pathophysiology behind it is, is quite complex. Yeah. Um, but again, it's to do with the microcirculation and um, clotting and infection. Okay, um, so there, there aren't many treatments available for sickle cell which is surprising because um, there are pretty severe complications from it. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the treatments that is widely used is hydroxyurea. It's not entirely known the mechanism behind that but one of the mechanisms that is known is it um, elevates your level of fetal haemoglobin. Okay. So the problem in sickle cell disease is, is your adult haemoglobin. Um, as you um, you know transition from being a baby to a child to an adult, your haemoglobin actually changes because you have changing needs. Um, and the mutation is in the adult haemoglobin. Uh, so the job of hydroxyurea is, is you still have a little bit of fetal haemoglobin, everybody does, um, but hydroxyurea um, increases the level of fetal haemoglobin so that you have your, your su blood supply has better oxygen carrying capacity. So that's one treatment. Um, the other treatment is exchange transfusion, which we've talked about, where you take out the bad um, haemoglobin, put somebody else's good haemoglobin in. And depending on the complications that you've had from sickle cell, you might be on a regular exchange transfusion program. These people get exchanged every approximately every six weeks. Okay. So you can imagine that's a huge burden on them and mm. their life to have to come into hospital and sit on an apheresis machine for hours every six weeks. Um, and then the final one, um, which is curative but with huge complications, is actually a, a stem cell transplant, an allergenic stem cell transplant. Um, and certainly in places like India, um, that, that is used not uncommonly because the burden of um, the cost of healthcare and transfusing and all those sorts of things is felt 
to outweigh the risk and the cost of doing an allergenic stem cell transplant. And uh, should we be suspecting sickle cell in anyone that has a family history of sickle cell yes, with, a, with an abnormal blood with abnormal blood counts or yes. hypoxia? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Good to yeah. know. Awesome. Thank you. The the only other emergency that I will mention again, it's it's very rare, but it's very specialised, and again, I think it brings out similar themes um, uh, about haematology in the emergency department. So the other the other situation that we're going to talk about is cytokine release syndrome, and this has come about because we have this amazing new cellular therapy, which is CAR T therapy. So um, that's been in the media a lot, um, and we are patients are being sent overseas to get CAR T therapy. But certainly, Westmead um, had a CAR T um, cell program. It did close for a while. I'm not sure where they're at. Yeah. And St Vincent's um, are doing CAR T therapy, mm. um, and it's had really dramatic uh, clinical responses and high rates of, of com- complete remission um, have been observed with CAR T therapy in the B cell malignancies. Um, so these are often um, relapsed patients with terrible diseases who without the CAR-T therapy would most certainly um, die. So it really has been revolutionary. And, and what it involves is the patient's own T-cells are genetically engineered to express a synthetic receptor that binds the tumour antigen um, and so those those cells are taken out they're they've been genetically changed and then they're grown up and expanded and infused back into the patient's body and they attack and destroy the chemotherapy resistant cancer so it's really quite amazing technology um, that has had really amazing responses but it's not without its side effects so cytokine release syndrome is a common toxicity um, from CAR T therapy and studies depending on what what product you're using yeah. and what disease you've got studies have shown that you get a cytokine release syndrome of varying severity in between 30 and 90 okay. percent um, so some studies almost all patients got some kind of cytokine release syndrome really fever is a hallmark and usually the first objective sign and that can happen within hours to days of the of the infusion um, or but it can be delayed depending on the product sort of a week later it looks for all the world like when you have a, a more severe cytokine release syndrome it looks for all the world like septic shock okay. it's pretty terrifying yep. um, patients crash unbelievably quickly um, they can get hemodynamic instability capillary weak and multi-organ failure just like you do in sepsis. This is very specialised medicine. It is rare. So if you've had a patient who's had any recent CAR-T therapy, I'd be ringing the haematology team immediately. Um, And that would be their protocol. So the hospitals, so St Vincent's, I know have a protocol. Westmead would have a protocol for the, especially for the emergency department. Um, You know, you treat it like a patient in septic shock. So your ABCs are supportive therapy early ICU involvement Um, there are specific treatments so steroids and um, tocilizumab which is an anti-IL-6 receptor and any hospital that's doing CAR T therapy will have um, tocilizumab available and the CAR T cell therapy is it used for what type of patients are they mainly using it on so it's generally um, patients with nasty B cell malignancies their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma their relapsed refractory ALL um, at this stage um, it tends to be patients who have 
no other treatment options available to okay. them. Yeah. And that sort of raises the point, I know we weren't going to talk about febrile neutropenia. When we do get a febrile neutropenia in, in our hospital, what are some things we've got to be mindful of and as a clinician or as, an, as a haematologist? Yeah. I think so we don't do it well. You've mentioned sometimes we don't do it. Well, no, sometimes. still, you know, after all this time, I think, um, <laughs> it's mentioned so much. It, it, it's it's okay. occasionally not done well, and then it's a disaster. Yeah. Um. So I think the key is is assume all haematology patients with a fever are neutropenic. I think that's a safe assumption, even if they haven't had recent treatment of yeah. any sort. Um. They, there's a good chance that they'll be neutropenic and that's because um, of the nature of haematological diseases. They affect the bone marrow where the neutrophils are made. Um, so even if you haven't had you know, chemotherapy that wipes out your bone marrow, the disease itself might be wiping out your bone marrow. So I, I think um, the safest thing to do is assume that any febrile haematology patient is neutropenic okay. and treat them quickly with broad-spectrum antibiotics. Okay. Do we wait? Do we wait no. back? Do we go, oh, wait, you know, what, what, we hear junior doctors and sometimes I'll wait for I'm the... I'm going to wait for the neutrophil count. Yes, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. What, what's your yeah, take on it? I, look, studies have shown time and time again that there is a clear correlation between time to antibiotics and patients' outcome. So the longer you delay those antibiotics, the worse the patient is going to do. Um, so I wouldn't really be waiting for anything. Um, you get a line in, you get some bloods off, you get a blood culture, and then you follow your department's febrile neutropenia protocol and you get them antibiotics early. And I think it's you know quite reasonable to give them a dose of antibiotics, get the story together and ring the consultant so that you're not delaying things. Yeah. Do you have tips for, back for anyone reading bloods? Like, do you have like a, a formula that you use to, when you're looking yes. at it? Yes, yes, look at it all carefully. There okay. is so much information in there. Yep. Um, and it's really, I think um, it's hard in the emergency department because people are under so much pressure. But if you've ordered a full blood count, it is your responsibility to look at it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and as I mentioned, there's a huge amount of information in there. There's, um, you get your haemoglobin and your red cell indices, which give you a huge amount of information. Are they anemic? Is it microcytic? Is it macrocytic? Um, you look at the rest of the differential. So, uh, you know, do they have white cells? Um, do they have platelets? Why don't they? Are there any other weird cells in there um, that should not be there? There's actually an automated flag within the full blood count analyzer to do that. Um, if there's something funny, don't ignore it. Ring up the lab and ask them to have a look at the blood film. So there's a whole lot of rules about blood films. Um, These are all automated rules that are built into the full blood count analyzer. So not every patient who has a full full blood count gets a blood film. And they might get a blood film, but it may not be looked at two or three days later. Um, That's not helpful for an emergency department. You've sent that patient home. So it's really important if if you're smelling a rat, so to speak, uh, ring up the lab and ask them to look at the blood film. I love case studies in medicine. For me, case studies bring knowledge to life. These case studies are different than the haematological emergencies we've discussed, but they really bring out some key principles um, in haematology. Discussing these haematological emergencies de-identified um, was really interesting as I sat across the room from Beck, or sat in the room with Beck, um, she got quite emotional talking about the first case. Um, her voice started to quiver. Um, we had to stop for a little bit. 
Um, and this really showed to me not only that Beck is an amazing doctor, she's an amazing geneticist, she's an amazing um, hematologist and scientist, but she's a really an amazing person who actually cares about people. Uh, and I imagined that when she's looking through that microscope, um, she knows that it does affect the patient when she sees an abnormal result. And although she loves the medicine, she really wants to help people, uh, which I thought was really, really amazing. Yeah. Are you going to run us through um, some cases? So we'll do a couple of cases. The first one is, is a, actually quite a quick case because it's a paediatric case and um, kids are so resilient. This is a story about twins, which is very personal for me because I have twin daughters. Um, but this is a story of a two-year-old girl who presented actually in the country and she'd just really been a bit off for a couple of weeks. She'd had increasing lethargy. The thing that tipped her parents over was she started to go yellow. She was jaundiced. Yep. But otherwise, this little girl was completely healthy, normal milestones, normal development. Um, she was one of two children um, and as you probably gathered, um, her, she had a twin sister. So when she presented, she had a haemoglobin of 37. Um, not sure if you're sure of the normal range, but 37 is very low. <laughs> um, she had a white cell count of, of 8.7. Key here is, is she had a neutrophil count of 0 0.6, um, which is very low, and a platelet count of 88, which is also low. So um, she presented with pancytopenia. Um, and I think there's a lesson there, whether it's paediatric or adults, I would not send anybody home from the emergency department who had pancytopenia that was not known. What's pancytopenia? So pancytopenia is, is when you have low, um, low blood counts of all the cells in your blood. So you have low hemoglobin, you have low white cells, particularly neutrophils. Not so interested in the lymphocytes because I'm not an immunologist. But, um, so you have low hemoglobin, low neutrophils and low platelets. Now that really sets off alarm bells for me. That says something is going on in that patient's bone marrow. Um, so please don't send that patient home before you've spoken to a hematologist and ask the laboratory to look at that patient's blood film because you do not want to send a patient home who has an acute leukaemia because um, that will not end very well at all. Um, that this little girl had circulating blasts. So unfortunately, um, this little two-year-old girl had a diagnosis of acute um, lymphoblastic leukaemia. It is the commonest of all childhood cancers and it's devastating for families. Um, patients have a good year of chemotherapy it, it, it's really really tough but um, the the great thing about um, ALL in kids is kids are really really um, they're pretty robust and most children who have a diagnosis and are treated with ALL will recover fully okay. recover with um, circulating blasts, what does that mean? What, um, does, is it that someone can see through a microscope and see things yeah. going around? Or so, you've seen it before, maybe? Yeah. So blasts are um, immature white cells. Okay. Nobody really should have any immature cells floating around in circulation. Okay. The immature cells are for the marrow. Okay. Um, they... Um, the cells in the marrow obviously start off immature um, and then they develop and it's not till they're fully mature um, that they're released into circulation okay. in a normal healthy person. Um, so if you have any immature cells, whether they be um, nucleated red blood cells or bits of megakaryocytes that make um, the platelets or circulating blasts, which, make, which 
go on to become the white cells or the neutrophils, um, that, that means that there is something wrong there. Um, and circulating blasts in, in a child is going to be acute leukaemia until proven otherwise. You know, when you're looking through, and I've never looked through and you see those things that look abnormal, Yeah. do, do you go, oh, It's a bittersweet like a... thing, actually, yep. um, because they are so fascinating and they are such beautiful cells, but um, mm. they are bad, 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 bad. Yep. Look, we get excited by things that are yep. um, abnormal or um, interesting, and but uh, you know, I think there's a key message in there. There is a patient on the end of that blood film. Mm, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll finish the story. So this little girl was brought up from the country up to the children's hospital up here and she started her chemotherapy almost immediately and her family came up with her, so her mum and her dad and her sister. Um, and three days after her twin sister was brought up here, um, the other twin were taken to an emergency department just down south because uh, that's where the family was staying. And she was a bit lethargic and a bit irritable. And she was assessed by the emergency department there. Um, and they were a little bit dismissive. Felt that because of the situation, um, understandably the the family was very anxious um so they reassured the family and and planted discharge this little girl um the second twin um but a full blood count was taken and that full blood count three days after her twin sister had been diagnosed with all um this little girl had a hemoglobin of 85 a platelet count of uh, 304 so hemoglobin's low platelets are normal her white cell count um her neutrophil count was very low at 0.2 and again she had occasional blast seen on her blood film so three days after her two-year-old twin sister was diagnosed with ALL she was also diagnosed with ALL so I think um you know it would be so devastating to have a child diagnosed with acute leukemia mm. but to have your twin daughters it's just devastating um so yeah, it's it's um, very would be very very difficult. Again, you know, it's that bittersweet thing because it's so it's fascinating. You know, fancy having twins, both of them having leukemia. It's a no. It's actually a known entity, um, concordant twin leukemia, and it comes about because um, monozygotic twins um, or monochorionic. Um, twins who have a monochorionic placenta who share a placenta in utero so one of the twins will develop the cancerous clone and it gets shared between the shared circulation um, and so it's it's a known thing that twins um, can develop leukemia together yeah I mean it had a really profound effect on me because I do have twin daughters um, and most of the time you know we see a lot of childhood leukemia a lot because it is the most common this case really um, uh, stuck with me um, one because it's quite remarkable and two it has a sort of a, a very personal connection I think can I say on just to <laughs> I don't want to be too depressing because there are um, there are great things about haematology yes often it's devastating but often it's really um so rewarding mm. and i know that these little girls are, are through um their treatment and awesome. have gotten through there is great joy sometimes yeah. and I, I was at school with a mate who actually had leukemia tc lymphoma slash leukemia 
and he's doing really well. He's actually an Instagram like a oh, really? a vegan, yeah, and he's Yay. actually a real powerful um, influencer for and just the way that he was able to to get through is, is, is amazing. And you're going to run us through another case? Have we got time? Yeah. Okay. Run us through. This is also a very remarkable story. So this was a 63-year-old man who was actually, he was born in by ambulance with really quite vague symptoms. He just said he felt a bit short of breath. He had no previous medical history, but that was probably because he, I don't know that he'd ever seen a doctor, possibly in his life. Mm. Um, he was extremely socially isolated. He wasn't homeless, um, but he was close to, he lived in a shed, um, and he was really um, pretty much a hermit. He had no friends and he had no family. He didn't describe any other symptoms except feeling a bit tired and short of breath. Um, and in particular, he denied any signs of um, having GI bleeding, so he didn't have any hematemesis, he didn't have any melina that he had noticed. Um, but he did um, get off the ambulance trolley himself and walk to the bed and get into bed and he was certainly conscious. So um, he had a full blood count um, and he had haemoglobin of 22 and that is real. So that is the lowest haemoglobin I have ever seen on a patient who was conscious and not, not bleeding. Quite remarkable. So then we had to find out why this patient was so unbelievably profoundly anemic um, and not be able to describe any symptoms of bleeding. Um, but if you have a close look at his haemoglobin, he's microcytic, so he has a low MCV and a low MCH. And what are they, Beck? Like if someone's looking so at that, they, they don't know about it. Yeah, they? so they're your red cell indices. And they tell you lots of stuff about your red cells and they help you understand why a patient is anemic. So traditionally, um, there's really two main causes of microcytic anemia. So that's a thalassemia or iron deficiency. Generally, it's pretty easy to tell the two apart. Um, or you can have anomocytic anemia. That's often due to things like chronic disease or, or acute bleeding. Um, or you can have macrocytic anemia. And that macrocytic anemia is either B12 or folate deficiency. Um, folate deficiency has almost disappeared from the community these days because um, I think bread is folate um, yep. fortified. Uh, it's often a sign that you have an underlying bone marrow um, problem if you're truly macrocytic. Um, so this man was profoundly anemic and it was a macrocytic anemia um, and then a really rarely available in the emergency department is your iron studies and they are very helpful um, so he had almost no stored iron which is ferritin his ferritin was seven um, and he had no serum iron it was undetectable conclusion for this guy was that he um, was having GI bleeding he just didn't realize it um, so he was transferred two units of packed red cells initially um, the key to that is is it was done very slowly because this is a guy who has a compensated an anemia of 20 um, so if you give him a whole if you transfuse him a whole lot of blood he's going to go into heart failure because he's he he's compensated very well he got off the bed he was conscious you know he could walk um, so I would tread very lightly when I was transfusing a patient like that um, he got admitted under the gastroenterologist and they did some scopes um, and he was shown to have an erosive gastritis and angiodysplasia and that was felt to be the reason for this profound anemia um, he also had an iron infusion that's very important in a patient who's iron deficient um, much more important than the transfusion of red cells okay. um, 
and he had a few other, um, he was, you know, discharged. And then he was lost to follow up for almost a year. Again, exactly the same presentation, brought in by ambulance, short of breath, um, conscious, walking around, but this time with a hemoglobin of 34. So he had improved mildly, but um, 34 is still profound anemia. But there was a difference this time. So when he came in with a hemoglobin of 22, he had an MCV of 65. He was quite microcytic. Things are starting to change this time. So he's very, very profoundly anemic at 34, but his MCV is now high. So he now has a macrocytic anemia. So something else is going on. Straight away, I look at that and go, oh, this is not just a patient who's got GI bleeding. His platelet count was a little bit low at 147, um, but at this stage he was becoming quite relatively neutropenic, so he had a white cell count of 1.3. And also we noticed, just on the full blood count, that his monocytes, which are another type of white cell, um, had gone up a little bit, they were a bit high. So, so alarm bells were going off in my head. Yes. This is essentially now a pan-cytopenic patient with not not microcytic but macrocytic so now I'm starting to worry that there's something wrong with his bone marrow when we did his iron studies this time he certainly we had replaced his iron very well um, <laughs> so his ferritin was now high and he had you know iron he at least had some iron floating around so this time almost a year later he was admitted under hematology uh, for investigation of pancytopenia Back to our patient. So we, a patient with macrocytosis and pancytopenia needs a bone marrow. Um, and unfortunately, we found in his marrow that he had almost, that all his normal hematopoiesis had been replaced with leukaemia. This poor gentleman had um, acute myeloid leukaemia. He, he's still quite young, 60. We would treat a patient like this to cure. Um, it's grueling treatment, but um, and the older you get, the harder it gets for acute leukaemia because you don't have the reserve that kids have. Um, so the treatment that we have to use for acute leukaemia is incredibly um, toxic. And the older you get, the less you're able to cope with that. But this man was an interesting man, and he uh, he had no support. Um, he did not want his lifestyle to change. He was very happy with his, I guess, um, some people will see it as a small life, but that was his life. Um, so he opted not to have treatment um, and was palliated um, over at palliative care. Oh, it's heavy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it is heavy. Um, hematology can be heavy. Mm. So the thing about acute leukemia, um, one of my, um, one of the consultants that I worked with, you know, patients would say to him, "But I was well a few weeks ago," uh, <laughs> and he would say, "Yes, that's why we call it acute leukemia." Uh, yeah. it, it is a really hard concept. I, I wonder if this guy had had something grumbling for a very long time but he was managing and he was living the life the way he wanted to lead and in some ways that decision um, is brave and is to be respected I think. Genomics this is an area that got you kind of really excited. So so most a lot of my day is spent um, doing genomics um, and genomics is becoming more and more integral 
part of haematology. Um, so genomics is uh, genetics really on a massive scale. The change from when I was a scientist to now as I, as I practice medicine and science actually is, is incredibly profound and I think it is one of humanity's great achievements and you know I think it's far more important than man landing on the moon if you choose to believe that (laughs) (laughs) when I was a scientist sort of around 2000 um, it was when the first human genome was sequenced um, and that was the entire human genome that at the time cost 1.5 billion dollars I don't know what the equivalent of that is today but we're talking billions Um, it took many many years and it took two very big companies so the US government and another private company um, it took them years to achieve that and now me personally I could sequence uh, someone's whole genome within a couple of days Um, Mm. so and and we have the technology and we do that here on site so I think that is profound Um, and I think people don't realize the extent of uh, genetic involvement in all health Mm. so we do genetic tests for the thalassemias for the sickle cells um, for the clotting diseases for the bone marrow failure diseases the basis of that is all genetics and then for the hematological malignancies again genetics is is crucial uh, in the diagnosis so we are the center of rare diseases in new south wales i think this lab is really one of the best genomics labs in the country and it's a great privilege Mm. and in a nutshell how does genomics change medicine so if they're able to let's say me profile me could we profile me early before I get sick and say, well, you're going to be susceptible to this or you're going to be susceptible to this and this why this medication will work better for you? I don't know. Does it? So that that's the aim. Um, yeah. I don't think we're there yet. No. Yeah. Um, so I think predictive medicine actually has, has quite a long way to go. Yeah. That's one of the goals of precision medicine, yeah. um, that we can look at your genome and say, well you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to get diabetes so why don't you go on this medication now Um, but we're not there yet Um, certainly at the moment for some of the severe genetic diseases there are not treatments Um, and then so you ask well well, why bother with a diagnosis but for a family who has a severely affected child um, it's incredibly important Mm. for them to have a diagnosis Um, it's incredibly important for them for their family planning or for their other children's family planning Um, and and sometimes there are specific treatments um, that come from um, you know the if we find a certain cause so um, yeah I think it's it's hugely exciting um, and it's only going to get bigger and become more integrated into the way we practice medicine mm. there's a person behind a lab result there's a person behind a phone call to a hematologist uh, and to a genomist there's someone who is you know has that mixed emotion between enjoying the medicine because we have to if we, we're going to spend all of our time and you've obviously made huge sacrifices to do this but also the bittersweet understanding that we are talking to real people yeah so I yeah the, the I hope so <laughs> yeah but um thank you for your time no um, my I'll, pleasure um, I'll put in in the case notes uh things on the American Society of Hematology um and yeah where to find stuff. so if people are looking to 
educate themselves on hematology? How would they do it? I suppose it depends on what level you're at. Um, but I think for nurses and for interns and residents in the emergency department, I think that um, the American Society of Hematology and the um, Blood Journal, there's lots of really great review and education articles that they publish. Um, and the good old New England Journal of Medicine has great review articles yep. um, that cover hematological topics. So they're probably my two go-tos um, yep. and I have to be honest um, up to date is a most remarkable resource so anyone in New South Wales Health can access up to date it's on SIA and they also have patient information sheets um, oh, which are gold okay yeah yeah good. so that's on up to date yeah awesome and also calling hematolo- a hematologist early which I've got out of this yes um, which is good and also don't rush through our blood results spend the yes. time if it is a few extra minutes have a look at the yeah. um, full blood count which sometimes we race through as clinicians. We do and there is a huge amount of information about your patient just in those few numbers. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for your time Beck. My pleasure. See ya. Bye. Sitting there chatting with Beck at Prince of Wales in one of the biggest genomics lab in the country and also looking out the window and seeing people doing the COVID testing and also seeing all the different lab results I couldn't help but think there'd be someone today getting an abnormal result, getting an abnormal test, you know, a family with a young child being told their little ones had leukemia. Um, it made me realize as a clinician, so often I get excited about abnormal results because I do love the medicine behind it. I do love, um, you know, when you don't just have everything green when it shows up as red because it's interesting. Um, but we've got to remember as clinicians that there is um, a person, a child or someone behind on the other end, edge of that. But also reminded me that, that these people that are in the lab, there's someone behind the microscope looking at these results first before we even get them reported. Thanks so much to everyone who's been listening to the ED Jam. Um, please follow me on Instagram, edjam underscore podcast. Um, and please have a listen, leave your comments um, on my Instagram page. Um, and please, we've got some interesting people coming up, some really big names coming up on the show. Coming up in the later months, we're going to be covering oncological emergencies. We're going to be covering chest trauma and rib fractures. We're going to be covering different agents to use in RSI and we'll also be covering a topic how to get clinicians to change their practice. So yeah, keep up to date. Um, Thank you so much. Remember to look at the show notes for all stuff on um, sickle cell and CAR T cell therapy. Um, I'll be putting a few journals in there to have a look at. Once again, thank you Beck and stay safe guys. All cases are de-identified for patient confidentiality and any advice given on the EDGM should not be taken over your local medical practitioner.